Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. All right, Kenna, today I wanted to start off the pod by asking, what makes you happy? Aww, oh my gosh, now I feel put on the spot. Um, I mean, I love taking walks, um, you know, walks around LA, walks on the beach. I like my friends, I like my boyfriend, um, I even like my family. Um, uh, it's nice when I can take a nap. <laughs> uh, you like anime? I love anime. You like the Marvel Universe? I love movies. I love fashion and music. Yeah. Um, I have one I thought of. It's pretty easy. It's like a cheat. So uh, it was my boyfriend's 40th birthday earlier this week, Ah. right? Yeah. And we were on a beach, and I was laying in one of those swinging chairs. Oh, those are nice. They're so nice. And I was just looking at the palm trees in the sky, and everything was so blue, and the clouds looked painted on, you know? They looked all fluffy and perfect, and it was warm outside, and there was a slight breeze, and I could, like, count coconuts on the palm tree, And I wasn't working or thinking about work, and I wasn't on my phone, because that was one of his requests for his birthday, that I wasn't on my phone or working. And I was just there in the moment, like, not worrying about anything at all. And in that moment, I was, like, consciously and truly happy. Aww, I love hearing that. Right? Um, But it's it's rare, I think, that I have those moments of, like, self-aware happiness. Like, acute happiness. Yeah. Um, it's hard. I, I don't know. I feel like usually it's me, same, where, like, I've made, I usually consciously take, like, a long walk around my neighborhood in the morning, and I just listen to music that I don't care if it's fucking cool. Lately, it's been, like, Studio Ghibli soundtracks and Why Can't Tori Read, which is Tori Amos's band from, like, the 80s. That sounds amazing. I didn't know she had a band in the 80s, first of all. Yeah, it actually is pretty sick. Okay, I definitely need to listen to that. And also the Studio Ghibli soundtrack, I feel like that makes your whole life feel like like magical. It does. And then I live uh, really close to, like, these cute houses, like, near, like, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the Observatory, Griffith Park, like mm-hmm. that end of, like, Los Feliz. So I just look at all the old houses and I get really... Okay, I get really excited when I pass this one house that has these, like, concrete pineapples, like, on their, like, gate. And you know that these concrete pineapples are, like, from the 20s. And I'm, like, so every time I pass it, I'm, like, ooh, this is, like, my favorite thing. But, like, I, that's usually, it's so funny because usually you think of the moments of, like, happiness is, like, you know, in our culture, it's, like, you get married or, like, you have a, a kid or, like, you have, like you graduate or you some big thing where it's like but to me like honestly sometimes like the happiest I've been like I've just been like walking around and being like whoa this is sick like the weather is really nice and I'm just like walking around listen to music I have a coffee like or like concrete pineapple concrete pineapple is joy yeah or like Really, one of the happiest times I've had is, like, I was, like, at this lake in Oregon with just, like, a couple of my buddies, and we, like, got one of my friend's dogs, like, on this little raft, and we were just, like, paddling around this little, like, chihuahua on this lake, and it was, like, so nice. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I, 
used to think that I was like a complex person, but anymore I'm like, I don't know if I'm really that complex. The simple things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have a follow-up question. Would you say that you're happy more often than not? Like, if you had to come up with a percent of your time that you spend awake, that you're actively experiencing happiness, like, what percent would you say? You know, this is really sad because it was probably, like, up until recently, it was probably 99% of the fucking time. Wow. I was unhappy. Oh, unhappy. Oh, I thought, like, happy. No. Oh, no, no, okay. No, no, wow. No. Uh... And it has definitely increased a lot since, like, the past couple years, honestly. But, like, when I was younger, I was really fucking miserable, like, all the time. Now I know I had undiagnosed a raging ADHD. (laughs) Raging. (laughs) That, like, so I just thought I was, like, a fuck up all the time. Right. And, like, but now I'm, like, pretty, now I'm pretty stoked. That's awesome. I feel like if I did the math. I think that I'm probably actively, genuinely happy, like, 5% of the time. But I also have an anxiety disorder, obviously. So I deal with a lot of stress constantly. I think probably more than the average person. Um, And also just, like, from managing a business and having a large internet presence, it's obviously a lot of stress. And I think that I probably spend 50% of my awake life in a period of active stress bordering on panic. Um, Yeah, I would say me, I... Lately, my anxiety, my anxiety has, like, decreased dramatically, like, frankly, from just, like, getting medication for my ADHD. Interesting. But, like, before then, it was, like, yeah, m- the majority of my time, I'm just, like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> so That's how I feel. I feel. Like, still, where I'm just, like, because it's just, like, but I feel like, okay, it's really funny. My happiness has definitely increased in proportionality to the amount of money that I have made oh and the amount yeah. of and the amount of hours that I work at my job and my commute like for a while I was living in Orange County so I was commuting two hours a day so taking the five between LA and Anaheim like that's that something was, they say I think they say that like commuting is one of the biggest like indicators of how happy you are with your life like the longer your commute like the less happy you are overall it's like a big stressor yeah and like working less because for a while I was working like 80 hours a week because I worked for myself I was working like too much I think when we met both you and I were on the 80 to 100 hour a week yeah I was working from when I woke up to when I shut my eyes like at night and sometimes and usually I would take like a nap in the afternoon yeah I think I was the same way I'm not a napper but like yeah I would do like right when I woke up until I like couldn't work anymore because I was passing out falling asleep and I would do it seven days a week Because there's always work to be done and it's really toxic and bad. And like, you know, we talked about this in our 69420 work week episode, but it's like the, and our Elon Musk episode actually, which again, sorry, everybody, the sound quality was so bad on that. I had COVID. So we did a remote recording and it cut out a lot. It was not great. And I don't have the greatest internet. So it could be, it could have been me just to be fair. Okay. Well, thank you. That's nice. Whatever it was though. Um, But yeah, one of the things is like, the more you work, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing more and you're more productive because you hit a burnout point. Yeah, and it's wild to me, like, working, because we have the 32-hour, well, now it's less than 32, 28. it's like 28. Um, I usually end up, I feel like, working sometimes 30, you know, between yeah. 27 and 30. So, like, even just, let's say 30. Like, yeah. let's say I'm working 30, like, I am so much more productive 
Like, Me too. Because it's like you're there. You feel like you're there to work. You're like on top of things. Yeah, I, that's how I feel too. I'm like, okay, it's work time. It's 100% work time. There's no lollygagging. It feels good. But like I do, I definitely think that if I, yeah, like I probably spend 5% of my time genuinely happy. 50% just like telling myself quietly in my head like, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it right now, aren't you? You're about to lose it. Oh my God, don't lose it. Just hold it together. Hold it together. Breathe, breathe, breathe. Like that is just playing on repeat inside my head. And then I feel like 45% of my time is just kind of like neutral, like without consideration, just like completing tasks like in the zone. But yeah, probably just like 5% genuine happiness. Yeah. Wow. I wish I had more, I'm having more neutral time as of late, but before I was just always calculating, like, I feel like in every social situation, I'm like, I don't understand what's going on here. So being around people is like a chess game of like <laughs> what's appropriate and what's not and I'm just like okay I deal with that on the internet because like one of the things about the internet is I'm like oh I'm always trying to be like super transparent and like if somebody wants to talk to me like I'll talk to them and then sometimes people are like you are like talking to me too much on the internet like why are you doing this and I'm like oh my god I thought that's what you wanted like I'm so sorry I misread this situation dramatically like on the internet I feel like maybe it's just also that people have different expectations of internet etiquette because like the internet's relatively new but yeah how you feel in IRL social situations is how I feel in URL social situations. I feel like like IRL I just go into customer service mode where I'm just like how can I help you (laughs) or like even if it's a problem on someone else's end I'm just like we are going to solve this together even though it's like really like if I put up a boundary I'm like it's not really my problem (laughs) yeah Okay, well, today, obviously, the topic for our episode is happiness. Aww. Yeah. Um, so, right out of the gate, when thinking about my own relationship with happiness, I realized that I actually do not know if my personal definition of happiness is, like, the same definition that other people use. Like, to me, happiness means an active, conscious experience of joy. Like, oh, I'm happy in this moment right now. I can feel it. It is happening. I am aware of it. Like, what do you think of happiness, though, Kenna? Like, how do you define it? Yeah, usually I don't realize it till I'm in the moment. And I'm just like, this is great. I gotta remember this. Like, this is awesome. I think the last time of, like, really, like, like where I was like, whoa, this is, like, Really, I, I think that's when we all did work karaoke in, like, the room. It was so fun. It was so fun, and I was just like, wow, I'm really happy right now. Like, I could, I should want to do this all the time. Uh, work karaoke was really fun. Oh I, I feel, like, so dorky, but I do have so much fun uh, at work and with our coworkers. Yeah, it's really fun. Like, I, I always thought that I was a loner because, like, I grew up in a small town, was a weirdo, and I'm just like, everyone is against me. But, like, honestly, the more I get older, or, like, during the pandemic, I'm like, oh, I think I actually like people, and I like being around people, and I'm not, like, alone. I'm not a lone wolf. I'm I'm a corgi. Yes, you are a corgi. Oh, my God. You're totally a corgi. Wow, I love that. Me and just a, need a little pack of other small dogs. <laughs> I like that because I'm a long-haired chihuahua, which is that I'm fancy but small and aggressive, which is I'm yelling all the time. Uh, yeah, I need to learn more about corgis, but I definitely feel like when I see them where I'm kind of like, I I, I take myself seriously on the inside, but on the outside, um, not serious. <laughs> <Puppy>. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like 
Um, yeah, like the biggest pull in my own brain when I think about what happiness is, is how much is happiness like a personality trait or a human emotion versus like a reaction to tangible things occurring in the world around you? Like, is the onus on me and my stupid brain to figure out how to be happy? Or is the onus on society to create an environment wherein it is more possible for people to be happy? Yeah, I think about that a lot too, because I'm just like, okay, if capitalism just went away, let's just say thought experiment, like, you know, Thanos, you know, snaps his fingers and, but instead of being like, no, 50% of the population, he's like, no capitalism anymore. Yeah. It's just in the, in the Marvel, we are in the Marvel universe. How much of my problems would go away and how much would people I know problems go away? Like for my sister, like literally probably 99% of her problems would go away. Like if capitalism, I think that 99% of my problems would go away instantly as well. Like, I think that there are some existential things like, you know, why do we have to like, why do our bodies break down as we get older? And why do people have to die? Or why are people dicks? Like I will, but I'm just like, those are things that you can mitigate. But like, really, there's just so much needless suffering. Like I think about like, once I had a steady job, like a lot of my problems went away. Right. And a job that was like not miserable to be in. Because the majority of my problems earlier were me trying to make enough money while being like, like a chronically ill person. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better now, but I was able to get better because I had resources to like spend on doctor's appointments, spend on like not working as much. Like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like when you're going 24 seven, just trying to like stay afloat, like you don't have a chance to like pay attention to your body and give it the rest and the time that it needs. So you know, when you're in an environment where suddenly you don't have to be on the hustle 24 seven and you're like, oh, I can rest. Like, oh, I can do this. It's like you, you maybe give your body the time and attention and care it needs. Yeah. And like, I think about too, like how many of my problems when I was younger came from me feeling that I needed to prove myself, especially in my quote unquote career. Right. And like, what, how would that look like to just be like, the moment I am born, I have the same respect as everybody else, regardless of their profession. Yeah, I think like definitely the things that would change in my life instantly that would make me happier is um, like, first of all, I would not be on the internet at all. I, or like very minimal, just how I, you know, whatever I like. There's this like fear though, that if I disappear off of the internet, like maybe it'll adversely affect my work. And then like also with work, if there was no capitalism, like I think about if we didn't have to manage the marketing and the money element, if there wasn't that, and it's just like, cool, we can just make clothes for people in our community who want clothes. Just go on our website, place an order for free. We'll make everything to order. Make everything to your exact measurements. Yeah, we'll get it all made for you. You just have to wait a couple months. We'll send it out. Everything's free. We'll come up with our little designs. We'll photograph them. Here's our offerings. Like, that would bring me so much peace like instantly all I think most of my stress would go away and like I used to think as a person who experienced a lot of stress like maybe it was just my stupid broken brain like maybe I'm not happy because my brain is never gonna be happy but there was a period in my life where I had a partner who was to me at the time rich I thought he was rich he made a hundred thousand dollars a year in LA and I was like so you're a rich guy and then now I'm like oh he probably was just middle class I just never met somebody middle class before actually everybody I knew was broke But when that happened, it's like he had a home, like 
I didn't, I moved in with him. I didn't have to pay rent. Like I helped with bills and stuff, but he was like, you have a lot of student loans instead of paying rent to me. Like I pay my mortgage. I'm used to paying my mortgage on my house. I own on my own. Like, why don't you just pay off a bunch of student loans? Like that's the only time in my life I was ever to get able to get like kind of ahead on my debt. Cause I always had so much debt. And like when I was in that stage and I didn't really have to worry about money as much, it was not that long. It was like six months of my life. But I remember waking up every single day and actively being like, I am so happy. Like all the stress of like not having to constantly worry about how a bill was going to get paid, constantly worry about if my checking account was overdrawn, constantly worry about my debt and all these things that like it was gone and I genuinely was happy. So like I know that I have an anxiety disorder, but I also know it's 100% exacerbated by the circumstances of capitalism. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I, the majority, you know, not the, you know, I don't know. A lot of my stress would be solved if I like didn't have to put myself in situations that made me just feel like overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> the bureaucracy and the. Yeah. Like stuff like that. Or like, cause I, you know, sometimes I just like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is too much. Like going to the supermarket. Like, so I'm just like, so if I just had to like, if I didn't have to add work on top of that, like the normal stressors of like taking care of yourself. Yes. Like that's really all I would have to worry about. Yeah. I think that I would also, there's a good chance that I would just want to build houses for people. Cause I'm like, this is so useful. This is something I can do. This doesn't require capital. Like I would love to like figure out how to do more meaningful work, I guess. Yeah. I think that I would just, I mean, I could still do this now just become a pop star in my 40s. I love that. So, okay, I have some quotes from famous people about happiness and what they think about happiness and if the onus lies on you, the individual, to figure it out or, you know, if your circumstances are partly to blame for your happiness or unhappiness. And shockingly, my favorite quote that I found is from this Republican politician lady, but, like, probably from different reasons than she intended. So her name was Claire Booth Luce, which sounds like, uh Cecile Bluth to me that's all I can think that that how much can a banana cost ten dollars or whatever oh, wasn't she like the wife of the guy who founded Time Magazine oh uh the Claire Booth Luce yeah possibly she was an American Republican woman who served in the U.S. House of Representatives from Connecticut in the 1940s I think this might be the same from the same I feel like it's like a kind of like d- American dynasty got it style family okay so she had this quote where she said Money can't buy happiness, but it can make you awfully comfortable while you're being miserable. For sure. (laughs) For fucking sure. I was like, oh, okay, we're a Republican lady from the 1940s. I mean, I think money can buy you at least a little bit of happiness up to a point. But uh, more than that, it just felt validating in some way to me. Uh, Like, yes, I cannot be happy, but I do at least deserve to be comfortable in my misery. (laughs) Yeah, at the very least. Similarly, David Lee Roth had a similar quote. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) So David Lee Roth was like, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a yacht big enough to pull up right alongside it. Hell yeah. So I'm like, okay, you know, these people, they're petty capitalists who really are like valuing the money lord, but also accidentally it does speak to my experience with money and my emotional state, I think. So we accidentally crossed over. But then there's also like this contingency that places happiness 100% in the camp of personal responsibility. They're like, it's up to you to be happy. Like if you're not happy, you're doing something wrong, whatever. And there's like so many people who think this way. So there's Martha Washington. And she said, the greater part of our misery or unhappiness is determined not by our circumstances, but by our disposition. 
And I'm like, ADK Martha, when my circumstances were that I was on a beach, not working, not experiencing stress at all, I was pretty fucking happy. So I don't think I agree with that statement. I think the greater part of my misery on happiness is definitely related to my circumstances. There was also this like English preacher from the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon, who said, uh, it is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. And I'm like, oh, okay. So you're just like a rich guy telling people to be happy with their like meager pennies or whatever. Then there was this motivational speaker who wrote a bunch of books in the 1970s and 80s named Dennis Waitley. Do you know who this guy is? No. Okay. So he said, happiness cannot be traveled to, owned, earned, worn, or consumed. And at first you're like, this sounds kind of anti-capitalist. I'm kind of into it. But then he follows it up with happiness is the spiritual experience of living every minute with love, grace, and gratitude. And I'm like, this guy's never had a job. (laughs) Every minute with love, grace, and gratitude. Like, my guy, have you ever worked in a retail location? Like, ever. You know, I do, like, to a certain extent, like, if you think, you know, think about, like, mindfulness, like, getting through tough situations the best that you can. Because it's like, if you're, like, in a bunch of, like, chronic pain it's just like sometimes you're just like I am sometimes it, like for me I had to be like I'm going to get through this the best that I can like not necessarily that I feel happy but that I have to feel some sort of like okay with the worst situation that I could be in yes there is a little bit I think of like like it's not like having a positive mindset isn't gonna do anything for you like it definitely can help you if you think positively about things. There's, like, fun studies about it. Like, it does benefit your life. I think, like, the thing that's most interesting to me, though, is I think, like, when I hear quotes like these people, it almost comes across like they cannot imagine a circumstance wherein you struggle to find anything to be joyful about in your life. Yeah, like, have you worked retail? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Have you been standing there, like, your 12th hour of the day, your boss won't let you go home, you make minimum wage, everybody's screaming at you, and somebody is, like, you know, waving something in your face and calling you a fucking idiot because you can't give them the discount that they want on something. You know what I mean? It's like, when you're in that situation and you're just like, I am just so tired, I just want to go home, you're not going to be standing there like, let me see how I can be graceful and have gratitude in that moment. Like you're human, you know, yeah. you're having a range of human emotional experiences. Um, there's also Abraham Lincoln. He said, most folks are as happy as they make up their minds to be, which I'm like, wow. Okay. Uh, Leo Tolstoy also said, if you want to be happy, be. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, fuck <laughs> you then. All right. Fuck off, I guess. <laughs> then- I feel like it's like, you know, people who just think, that they're really, like, they think they're really, really smart. And then I just <laughs> say shit like that. That's, they just, like, they're just really confusing and, like, actually nonsensical. Yeah. But then they're just like, look at how smart I am. You couldn't even comprehend what I just said. And you're just like. Okay, one time I watched an interview with Mark Bolin from T-Rex. And there was a moment like that. And I was like, I can't even handle this right now. Um God, I wish I could remember. It was, like, this guy interviewing him, and he was, like, oh, so you, like, basically the gist of it was, like, you live this, like, bohemian lifestyle, and you talk about how, like, you don't have a job, and you're just, like, this artist, and you do whatever you want, and that's the ultimate form of rebellion, but, like, normal people can't do that, right? Like, you can only do that because you're Mark Bolin. Like, you are a very talented musician or something like that, and then Mark Bolin's response was something like, I guess what I would say to that is, can't you? 
And then he looked really smug, like he'd done something. And the guy was just like, no, most people cannot just be Mark Bolin. Like, what are you talking about? Most people have jobs and bills. Anyway, so then there's also Aristotle who said, happiness depends on ourselves. Mm. See, and I just feel like it's kind of like that toxic positivity vibe, right? Like, you're not unhappy because life is hard. You're unhappy because your vibes are off. Like, Never mind the fact that it's pretty hard to be grateful when life is shitting on you all the time and you're struggling and you're afraid and you're exhausted. So it just kind of comes across as like this weird victim blaming of like the poor to me or something. Yeah, especially with the shit where it's just like, I feel you're not like on a very high vibration right now. <laughs> yeah. And that shit has been done to me when I was like very, very ill. Like yeah. not of my own... I did not choose to get ill. Oh, you didn't choose that? (laughs) I did not choose to get ill. And actually, I really tried to positively get out of the illness. (laughs) But spoiler, only the medicine they gave me worked. Okay, got it. So if I get sick, I can't just like vibe myself out of it is what you're saying. I mean, mean, whatever works. But for me, it it did, did not work. Yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying, though. It's like, like, that's the toxic positivity thing, where they're just like, like, whoa, like, your vibes are weird, like, you could fix this, like, what do you do? It's like a lot of, it's like a lot of denying the reality of circumstance. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's, it's a, it's a bootstrappy thing, but like, wrapped in like a weird new age ribbon. Yes, exactly. It is totally new age bootstrappy. And I think you're right that it like, gets tied up in like, ableist ideas of like wellness and health a lot yeah because straight up some people are like if you are disabled that is your fault yeah it's crazy. you can choose not to be oh i just said the word crazy in a combo about disabled we probably shouldn't say that but i've been trying to reclaim crazy ever since i got multiple <laughs> diagnoses in the same year i'm like you know what i feel like i can take this one back for me maybe but i'm not sure but yeah no regardless of whether i should be saying that word or not it's definitely like a, like a very victim blamey kind of thing and also like I feel like people are grasping for straws because they want to believe they have more control over their life and their circumstances than they do. Yeah, and, I, you know, I think it does come, like, sometimes it really comes from a good place because you're just, like, you want to believe that the world is ultimately good and there is order to the world and it is not just, like, chaos and there's some bad shit going on. Right, you don't want to live in a world where bad shit happens to people just because it happens to people and there's no reason, but it's like that that is the world we live in. Sometimes just bad shit happens to people and usually the reason is like capitalism or racism or bigotry. I mean, and sometimes it's just bad fucking luck. And sometimes it's just bad fucking luck, yeah. But like yeah, there seems to be this general consensus, you know, among some of these people that happiness is up to you, you alone, your circumstances don't make a difference. It's all just in your own head. And then on the flip side, there's like this other contingency of people who are like tortured artist types maybe, and they're like, "Look, when you know how fucked up the world is, it's literally impossible to be happy." Which seems to indicate to them that maybe happiness is 100% contingent upon your circumstances. Like there's a uh, Gustav Flaubert who said, to be stupid, selfish, and have good health are three requirements for happiness. Though if stupidity is lacking, all is lost. And that was like low-key eugenics vibes for me for a few reasons. Like, oh, okay, people in poor health just can't be happy then, I guess. Fuck off. Uh, It seems kind of like messed up. But then there's also like Ernest Hemingway, who's in this camp kind of, and he famously said, happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. And then there's Ingrid Bergman, who said, happiness at is good health and a bad memory. So again, with the weird health things, there's like, 
just like I don't like people who aren't in good health don't deserve to live apparently I don't understand they get no joy out of their lives apparently according to these people and in all of these quotes it's hard not to notice that like the idea of happiness almost seems intrinsically political in a way because it's like reflecting systems of power you know it's like oh if you're smart you can't be happy or like if you're not physically well you can't be happy and it like reflects these like power systems but like in really weird complex ways that I don't think make sense yeah you know I was actually just thinking about this I'm just like who in our society right now like in American society is like fucking stoked right now like who is just walking around being super duper happy Elon Musk based on our last episode (laughs) but even he's still like that's true. He's still fighting with people on the internet. This is like something my boyfriend said to me where he's like, if you are rich and you go on the internet, I have no sympathy for you because you literally did not need to subject yourself to that. And like, I don't, if you're rich, the best thing you could do in the current system we have is make me not have to hear about you at all. Like you are inconveniencing me and anybody who trolls you on the internet, you deserve it because you don't have to be there. Like if you're broke, you got to market yourself online. I get it. That's how life goes. It's fucked up. That's capitalism. But if you're like a a fucking billionaire you don't have to be here you're here because you want attention and I hope all the attention you get is bad and I hope I never hear about you again and I'm like dude I respect that I respect that perspective yeah because I was just like who is walking around right now like being like life rocks I like I think it's I think rich guys I think there's some rich guys who are still into it like I think Bezos maybe is happy do you think he's happy who fucking knows? Like, I guess maybe you he's not wonder, happy. like you know, like it. There's always like those movie, you know, like Citizen Kane. Like the rich guy comes home at night, but he feels empty inside because he has no one to love or who loves him. Right. So yeah, yeah. I actually, I do wonder. I'm like, who, who is benefiting from our society? And I feel like it's just like a very few couple of rich guys who might not actually even be benefiting they just think they are yeah and it blows my mind because I feel like we're all being like gaslit where it's like like people know like I it's so funny like I just like I know there are people who are generally like they're probably like walking around like oh the most the majority of my time is I'm spent happy but I guess I don't know these people no I don't know these people either everybody I know is mentally ill and struggling (laughs) but even like but in a fun way but I feel like people are just like if you look at the media people are not okay like remember when we were younger even during George Bush like what we would what would you talk about like oh I'm going to this show like oh did you see fucking uh dude where's my car like there was like or we'd be like fuck George Bush blah 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 but now like people are like not okay like they're just like yeah you know with all the inflation and then the gas and then the it is getting worse the world is just getting hotter and I just don't know if the world is gonna be around in 20 years like it is fucking different than it was like I do think it is wild for me to think that you know in the matrix they're like 2000 or like 1999 was the peak year for humanity and you're like whoa dude is that fucking right? I think it, I think they might have been right. I think they might have been right. So, like, in psychology and philosophy, and especially this, like, area where the two overlap, they often conceptualize of happiness in two different ways. So there's, like, hedonism, kind of, and I think this thing is called, like, eudaimonism? Eudaimonism? I mean, it's, like, basically... Is it Greek? 
It's eudaimonic. 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 It sounds like you demonic. Oh. I think maybe, okay, whatever it is. And so the first one, hedonic happiness, that relates to like pleasure and enjoyment, like in the moment. Um, so like way back in the fourth century BC, there was this Greek philosopher named Arist- Aristippus. Aristippus. Aristippus? I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with option two. I like that one. Yeah. So Aristippus was telling people like, look, your main goal in life should just be like maximizing your pleasure as much as possible. Um, and I, that kind of kills me because it's like total rich guy thinking like, uh, quitting work would give me instant pleasure, but like long-term grief, right? Because maximizing pleasure itself is a contradictory experience of short-term and long-term like happiness and goals and like wish fulfillment. I mean, on the other hand, if you were a Marxist bimbo, <laughs> <laughs> like myself, no. <laughs> no, but you could be like, you know, we should all just be getting pleasure right now. Yeah. I mean, I respect it. I just don't feel like it's realistic for me. And that makes me resentful in like a jealous petty way. Um, I think about this where it's like, yeah, I, it's like, I guess it's just like in the moment, it's like, do it, doing stuff, <laughs> doing doing uh sassy stuff yeah <laughs> and or um get fucked up <laughs> right partying you're partying which is like honestly i feel like if i just like me personally i have a lower threshold for that i get just too tired <laughs> it's exhausting it's exhausting it's exhausting i get energized by it i get it i get where this guy is coming from um even if i am petty and jealous about it but like a lot of other dudes liked this idea of what he was laying down, like Hobbes and Bentham. And this idea of like hedonistic pleasure came to include pleasures of both the mind and body. Oh, oh yeah. Um, so I was thinking about like what my ultimate state of hedonistic pleasure would be. And I think mine would be filling an entire room with memory foam. So the entire room is a memory foam uh, mattress. Then rolling around in it all day while sci-fi movies play on a screen above my head. And then maybe I'm wearing one of those beer can hats that just like has a straw connected (laughs) to iced coffee. And then maybe also there's someone there who just has to feed me nachos all day or something. But I, I don't think anybody else's idea of hedonistic pleasure would be feeding me nachos all day. So I can't experience my hedonistic pleasure without oppressing other people. And I also don't know how I'd pay the power bill. I'm going to say there is probably someone out there who would love to feed you nachos and wait on you all day. That's really nice. And I feel like you're saying that because you're my friend. <laughs> saying there might be someone out there there might be it takes all types what would your like ultimate state of hedonistic pleasure be oh i love i love floating in some water oh I love, like i loved when i had like i did a sensory deprivation take well a uh, flotation tank it was so but it actually was a room because i get a little bit of uh claustrophobia uh so i would just be like floating around all day like either in a pool or i have a room that is like just in a house, but in the house is like a swimming pool. So I can just like watch TV from the swimming pool inside my house. I love that. We have similar goals. Yeah. I want to float around. I do love watching movies. We want to be entertained while largely being horizontal. Yes. But then also like maybe going to like a party after. Oh, I like that for sure. Um, so like the other one though, the eudaimonic happiness, this one relates to a sense of like deeper meaning and purpose in your life. So this is like Aristotle shit. And I think this is the first time I've ever said Aristotle without my friend David here. So hopefully if you listen to this episode, yeah, hopefully if you listen to this episode though, I'm not going to say anything wrong about Aristotle. You know what I mean? You'll be, you'll be so screwed. Yeah. 
Um, but if you haven't, if you don't know who David is and you're listening, he guest hosted an episode uh, on the paranormal that we did recently. And it was a pretty good episode. But hopefully David doesn't have any corrections for me. Uh, but apparently Aristotle was like, look, if you want to be happy, you have to live according to your own virtue. Like people are always trying to be the best versions of themselves and meet their full potential in order to have a greater sense of purpose and meaning in their lives. And Plato and Kant were in this camp too. And this sounds great to me, but like, who can think about self-actualization on that level when you are just trying to survive? So it, in a different way, also just still sounded like rich guy shit to me. Yeah, a little bit. Like, yeah, because basically it's like, it's really hard to live your values under capitalism because you are going to do something fucked up. Right. Like, no matter, like, what you... We both watched The Good Place, and yes. I feel like there is, like, a really good part where, like, one of the, like, cosmic judges is, like, Earth is, like, you you know, you you eat a burrito, and you then... But that means that you're you're causing this ripple effect where someone's getting underpaid for the tomatoes and like even eating a burrito is bad. Yes, exactly. There's a chicken sandwich and it's really good, but if you eat it, it means you hate gay people. Exactly. Yes, my heart off, yes. Um, so like, I feel like I could have that eudaimonic state of happiness, right? And it would just be like me trying to help other people live good lives. Like that's what I feel like would give me meaning. Like think about building houses. I want to build houses for everyone I know. And I feel like that would be ultimately fulfilling and give me a sense of purpose. And that could bring me that self-actualization level of eudaimonic happiness, but I need money to do that. So like, here we are, you know, it's like everything just kind of feels like capitalism is like the gate you can't get past to like achieve any of these things. So now though, like now that we've gone through time and had more experiences, most psychological researchers are like, look, you actually need both of those things in order to be happy. So in one study, researchers found that hedonic behavior increased positive emotions and life satisfaction and helped regulate emotions while also reducing negative emotions like stress and depression in the moment. But then eudaimonic behavior led to a greater like sense of there's a meaning in life and more experiences of like spiritual elevation or the feeling that one experiences when they witness moral virtue. And people kind of figure like, okay, so you need both of those things because the hedonic pleasure that's pleasing in the moment that wears off that's short-term happiness things like parties or good food or whatever they're kind of novel and if you get enough of something it ceases to be novel and therefore stops being as fulfilling so most people can agree that like happiness is a positive emotional state but that that can be interpreted a lot of different ways and there's short-term experiences of happiness and long-term experiences of happiness and ultimately to be considered a happy person you have to have both. But beyond that, everyone starts to get kind of conflicting ideas about what happiness actually is. So some people are like, look, we shouldn't even use the word happiness. What does it even mean? It's overused. People have connotations to it. And instead, a lot of people prefer to think about the idea of well-being. And well-being is broken up into two different parts as well. There's like subjective well-being, but there's also this thing called psychological well-being, which some scientists attempt to measure actually by looking at six different constructs. The first one is autonomy. The second one is personal growth. The third one is purpose in life. The fourth one is self-acceptance. The fifth one is mastery. And the sixth one is positive connection to others. And personally, I think these are all pretty interesting because according to those six things, I should be pretty happy. Like, I feel like I've got a lot of those things, but none of those contends with the level of stress that I experience and how much I encounter outside stressors, which contribute heavily to my unhappiness on the day to day. 
So I like actually don't think that's that good of a metric. So what research has shown is that each of us has our own happiness set point and it's different for every single one of us. And there's this one psychologist who researched this named Sonia Lyubomirsky who found that 50% of an individual's happiness set point is just determined by your genetics. Like, yeah, however happy you can or cannot be in a situation, like your happiness level, like right out of the gate, half of it is just based on your genes. Wow, you know, this makes a lot of sense because I am really realizing how much I am like my mother because her her favorite things on the planet are taking long walks. She takes a long walk every day also naps <laughs> and having a good glass of wine with her friends yes i'm very similar to my father definitely like we both had the uh, adult diagnosed adhd we're both very chaotic like we both sing to ourselves instead of talking we both narrate everything we do in life like we both also love like excitement and parties and like ooh, what's that it caught my attention and like loud music and so i got it so beyond the 50% of your individual happiness that this researcher, Sonia Lyubomirsky says is determined by genetics, 10% of your happiness is supposed to be determined by circumstances out of your control. Just like where you're born, what you're experiencing. I actually am not sure how correct her info is because I feel like a lot more of it is circumstance. I feel like that has a lot more to do with your life. But also the lines between genetics and circumstance do kind of blur and she did a whole research study on it and I'm just thinking. So then she also determined that 40% of of your happiness, that is determined by things you actually can control, which would be like your state of mind and things like that. So I definitely, well, I feel like these numbers are wrong for me personally. Um, It could also mean that my genetic happiness set point is just very low. So my circumstances weigh in a lot more. I am not sure. But whatever the case, for the average person, her research does say that over half of your happiness is outside of your control, which contradicts what some of those more thinky people were giving us quotes about earlier, saying like, no, it's it's all in your mind. You have to decide to be happy. She's like, look, no, only 40% of your happiness can be controlled by your decision-making and your state of mind. And 60%, like, you have no control over. It's your genetics and your circumstances. So despite all of this, there is like a ton of emphasis that we place on that 40% of things you can control. And I feel like it is that form of mental bootstrapping we were kind of talking about. Like those quotes at the beginning of the episode, it reinforces the idea that happiness is something you create for yourself. And if you're unhappy, it's because you failed in some way. And there definitely are things that most people agree will make you happier. Like regular people usually say that things that bring them happiness include family, friends, and relationships, right? Like your mom liking the glass of wine with her friends, sun, nature, and being outdoors, going on the walks, uh, just doing things you enjoy, like hobbies, like, you know, for me, watching sci-fi, thought processes, like gratitude and self-compassion, and like the self-compassion one I definitely see, like being easy on yourself, allowing yourself like opportunities to make mistakes. Uh, The next one is exercise. That's supposed to be pretty good for your happiness. Then there's financial security and safety, uh, to me, though, that's not one that you, like, can control at all. That's a circumstance thing. There's also purposeful work, which kind of goes with that, like, non-hedonic forms of happiness. Like, just, like, your idea that you have purpose and meaning in life. And then also, like, accomplishing, creating, and achieving something, which ties into that, too. 
But then there's also the stuff that gets like a bit toxic that places emphasis on your state of mind. And people often say that certain mental dispositions can contribute to feeling happier. Like just having more gratitude, thinking more positive, being kind, being resilient, uh, self-regulation, and just like having good social skills, people say a lot will go a long way. Um, and I guess that just means like neurodivergent people were just fucked or something. <laughs> like we're like, I don't know what's happening. I'm trying very hard. And they're like, you'll never be happy, you loser. <laughs> but one psychological researcher broke down the specific ways people pursue or experience happiness into like three different categories in an effort to see how people try to take control of their own experiences of happiness and like manifest them in some way. So I'm going to read these three. You should tell me which one as you hear it you think is you, okay? Okay. Okay, so the first one is the energy seeker. And this is somebody who values emotions like passion, excitement, enthusiasm, confidence, and feeling triumphant, exhilarated, or inspired. The second is the connection seeker who values love, connections, appreciation, or being secure. And the third is the goal seeker who values being productive, appreciated, satisfied, and sometimes secure, confident, or proud. So which one of those do you think you are? Oh, I'm probably the second. Like, even though, like, at some points in my life, I feel like I have been the third. I think deep down, I'm just like, I just want to have, like, a really good, like, conversation with someone. Like, and, like, be, like, get, like, really juicy. Like, me and my, one of my good friends, I feel like all we ever do, like, we we don't have activities. We just talk for, like, three hours. Yes. I mean, I thought that you were the second one also. I was like, I think that's kind of, I think I'm a combo in the first and third. I can't decide which one's more me. I feel like you're the first. Okay. And, I kinda, and a little bit of the third. Yeah, I definitely feel like, I think that's correct. Yes. But also like, I think just like the third is really like, one, it's like, it's kind of valued in our society or like if you work a job, like you're goal yes. oriented, but also like when you do have ADHD, like goals are like, Ooh, like a thing to do. <laughs> yes. It's a task to complete. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think like the whole thing this researcher was trying to get at is just like, look, people value different things. And because of that, everyone's going to have a different path to trying to find happiness for themselves based on those values within that 40% range of the shit we can control. For example, I don't value my family. So being around family is not going to bring me happiness like it might someone else, right? Like we have different values. So happiness is going to be pursued in different ways to each of us. But all this kind of speaks to this ongoing rhetoric still of things you can do to be in control of your own happiness. And besides this woman, there's like all this kind of like weird toxic positivity, like control your mindset, ooh, kind of stuff that you can find. And a lot of people recommend doing all sorts of things. Um, You know, I found 10 of the most common ones that I encountered. The first one is building gratitude skills which would be like, instead of focusing on what you don't have, be grateful for what you do have. But to me, this kind of feels like capitalist shilling. Like, I'm not gonna be mad that I don't have secure access to healthcare because I have a dog I like and my dog is nice. You know what I mean? Like the existence of a thing that's good to me doesn't negate the hardship of a thing that's bad. Yeah, like I will be like, yay, I'm so grateful for like my boyfriend or I'm grateful for like my sister. But like, I'm definitely not fucking grateful that I have to pay for health insurance. Right. That shit sucks. I mean, it doesn't, yeah, like you said, it doesn't negate the fact that like, yeah, like sometimes I think that we forget to be like grateful for things that are like, we don't think about things like we take things for granted sometimes, you know, like sometimes I'm like, oh, like like this person does so much for me and I like, I feel like they like, I never say like, thank you enough. Like that's one thing. (laughs) <laughs> right. But I mean, whatever the case, psychologists do say that if you do this trick, 
like, and you're always just like looking for things to be grateful for, you will trick yourself into being happier. Okay, so the second one people say a lot is just like being yourself, which means just like living authentically to meet your own expectations rather than the expectations of others, which yeah, sounds great, but like realistically, we live in a hyper-connected like social environment. Oh, Jesus. If I were myself all the time, people would be like, Kenna, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, you are so off-putting. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think it's off-putting necessarily, but I think it's like you can't, like, I think it's important to be aware of social, like, of what people around you are hoping to get out of a situation as much as possible to be, like, respectful of them and their space. Like, if everybody was just like, nah, I'm not thinking about anybody else and their expectations of me, I'm just doing me. It's like, that's kind of like a hyper-individualistic shit show, right? So- yeah, or just like, yeah, like, sometimes it's like, I I border a lot, where it's just like, I could just, like, not say this weird thing that I really want to say for the sake of, like, being at a party and not talking for two hours about hedgehogs. Yes. But, like, it's, it's like, yeah, it's like a nuanced thing. It's a nuanced thing. Like, yeah, yeah. I just did what I wanted to do all the time. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I, I don't know if I should have that power. <laughs> So the third thing is like getting your core phys- uh, psychological needs met, which researchers say includes autonomy, which is like just being able to choose the direction your life goes, competence, which is the sense that you're effectively using your abilities, and relatedness, which is just feeling socially connected to others. And I can definitely see how this would be something that, you know, brings happiness and joy to your life, but it's also something that's not entirely in your control, like you can only do so much. The fourth thing is knowing your worth, which would just be like boosting your self-esteem basically through things like self-compassion and reversing negative self-thinking. That one seems pretty innocuous to me. I don't think anything bad comes out of that. The fifth one is investing in your own happiness. So this would be like putting time and energy into experiences and modes of thinking that improve your overall happiness. And they might even be like literal financial investments sometimes. Like it could just be like, no, I'm always setting aside an hour a day to go on a walk because I know that makes me happy. Or it could be something like, vacuuming stresses me out so much I'm investing literal money into buying a fucking Roomba even if it's not the most responsible thing to do because it brings me joy like when you make those little investments of either like time commitments or financial or whatever into your own happiness it does actually like tend to have positive effects in your life so the sixth thing is investing in your relationships that one's pretty obvious right spending time with people you care about The seventh thing is shifting your attention, which means like focusing on the future by thinking about positive experiences you will have, focusing on the present by savoring the moment, or focusing on the past by remembering positive experiences you had in the past. And it can also just mean like being optimistic or reframing your fears or stress, often using a technique called cognitive reappraisal, which just shifts your thoughts or perspectives on a situation to reduce the negative impact of what you're experiencing. And I feel like that can be, that's like one of those things where it's like you can use it for good or for evil, right? You can totally gaslight yourself or yeah, it can be like a survival like tool. Whether like cognitive behavioral therapy does not work for neurodivergent people. Cause it's like, people aren't really mad at you. And you're like, no, they fucking are. <laughs> and that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> There's also the eighth one is setting meaningful goals, like life goals to do things that you know will help satisfy psychological needs in the future and then working towards them especially if you can relate those goals back to like what type of seeker you are, those three types of seekers. Like if you know you value human connections, for example, you can set goals that allow you to have a life that maximizes your human connections, things like that. Just kind of like planning goals that take into consideration what brings you joy and working towards achieving that. The ninth thing is just like believing you can be happy. And I think this is something you and I were touching on where it's kind of the idea of manifestation 
But it is true that believing in something does make you more likely to experience it. Yeah, that's the only thing. Like, oh my god. Like, it's like kind of like embarrassing to admit that like I did go through a period where I was reading so much fucking self-help shit. Now I realize it was because I had like ADHD that was like really fucking with my life like at that moment. But like a lot of it is like just thinking you can do something like will help like that's the first step it's like I hate you know when you think of like AA meetings like the first step is like just admitting that you have a problem and I think like sometimes the first step is admitting that something is possible yeah I definitely agree with that I think like so the thing I think about the most is like buying my house like I never thought I was the kind of person who'd ever be able to afford to buy a house and the day that I was like no I'm gonna do it And I remember telling my boyfriend, like, we're going to buy a house. Like, it's going to take years, but we're going to do it. And I made a plan and we're going to do it. And then we just followed all the steps on the plan and it took years and it wasn't super easy and it was way harder than it should be for anybody, you know, but like it happened and it never would have happened if I hadn't, you know, just one day been like, "Uh uh-uh, we're doing this. I'm figuring it out. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So I have done this too, where I moved to LA and I was like, I am going to own my own vintage store. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. And I did it. But I did not have a plan. <laughs> but and if I knew how hard it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have fucking done it. But just because I was like, I'm going to do I. But also, I'm just like kind of a stubborn person. Yeah. I mean, I think like, like thinking you're going to do something isn't enough. But like it's you not said, enough. it's the first, it's a first step usually. And sometimes if, sometimes you actually can. It's like, you know, that old proverb where it's like, you can't win the lottery without buying a ticket. Yes. It's, you're buying the <laughs> ticket if you're like, I think I can do this. Who knows if it'll actually happen, but yeah. you're definitely not going to get there unless you get to that first step. So then the last one is being adaptable. This is the 10th one. And this is like, if you're like able to let go of things and be okay with things not going to according to plan, it actually allows you to live more in the moment and increases your experience of happiness because you're like allowing life to be fluid and happen around you and you're not like so upset that you're like mourning the loss of all of your plans basically that leads to a a greater sense of happiness yeah I wish I would have been more flexible in my past because like at one point I was like the only way I'm gonna be happy is if I become a successful musician the only way and I'm like there's other ways to you know live your life yes (laughs) But these are all these ideas about how you can work to alter that 40% of your happiness that you have control over, right? That's your state of mind stuff that you can alter. And I think it's interesting that there are so many hacks people tell you to do to take control of your own ideas of happiness. Uh, And I actually found this one hack online that's supposed to train your brain into a happier state. And I thought we could do it together. Cool. Okay, so are you down? Sure. All right. So here's what this hack says. So the first thing you're supposed to do is think about what you feel is bringing you unhappiness in your life and what you wish you could change about yourself to better deal with it. So like stronger relationships with people around you, more acceptance of yourself, more confidence, like whatever it is that you're like, this is a problem I identify and I wish that I could change it in this way. So, you know, it doesn't have to be super deep. You think of something. Uh, You don't have to say it out loud. Just think about it. Just think about it. Tell me when it's in your head. Okay. Okay, you got it? Okay, so close your eyes. Mm -hmm. So now you're going to think about a time that you were really happy. So so let me know when you've got an event that happened in your life that you're really happy in your mind. Just, you don't have to explain it. Just say when you've got it. Okay. Okay, so now focus in on your sensory experiences and that moment of happiness. Think about the sound around you while you were experiencing happiness, if there was any. Maybe it was quiet. Think about how things smelled. 
how things felt. Was it cold? Was it warm? Is there a breeze? Are you in the water? Are you dry? And once you're really tapped into that sensory experience, just say, okay, we'll move on to the next one. Okay. All right. So now you're really in your happiness moment. You're focusing on all the sensory experiences. The next thing you're going to do is also focus on like the psychological feelings that you're experiencing in the moment as well. So really think about how it feels in that moment and also think about tangible things. Who is there with you? Where are you? Like geographically, what's the location? Okay. So next you're going to think about how this experience of happiness can make you feel better in the future. Is it an experience that you can have again? If not, is there something similar you can do? We're really trying to think about how we can integrate more feelings of happiness, like this one you know you already had that worked, into your life in the future, or learn from this one feeling of happiness that you had and like use that as a jumping off point for your perspective going forward. So think about that. If you've, if you've got it figured out, let me know. Yeah. Okay. So next you're going to supplement that experience of happiness, that big event you're thinking of, with other small things in your day-to-day life that bring you true happiness. This would be for you like the, the coffee and the walks and the concrete pineapples. Um, you know, maybe it's someone you see every day. Maybe it's a pet. Maybe it's the smell of coffee in the morning. Whatever it is. And let me know when you've got that kind of built into it. Okay. Okay, so last, ignore every element of your current life that is not making you happy. Take this time to instead imagine a future version of yourself that is integrating small daily experiences of happiness with the larger monumental experiences of joy that you reflected on and you wanted to try to integrate into your life moving forward. So keeping your eyes closed, just imagine being the future happy version of yourself. Let me know when you got it. Okay. Okay, now open your eyes. Okay, so do you feel happier than you did when we started the exercise? Do you feel more connected to what happiness means to you? Do you feel like you understand your own sense of joy? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's kind of like a meditative experience It's kind of like uh, hypnotism. Or not okay. hip- I, like, did this thing online that was, like, self-hypnosis that felt very similar. Oh, okay. But also, I am very easily self-hypnotized because I have a strange thing that happens where I have very vivid dreams before I start dr- before I fall asleep. Oh, I know you have like the wild dreams. I have, I've had to start a thing where I can't watch anything even remotely weird or scary before I go to bed because I will dream about it. Yeah. Um, I think this is like, okay. So I think this kind of like thought about like imagining, you know, if you're like in a creative or imaginative state of mind, I think it's like mostly positive as long as you're not being chased by monsters or whatever in your dreams um but I also wonder how much just putting yourself in the frame of mind that like you're gonna be happy you're gonna be happy you're gonna be happy sets you up to be content with being mistreated in life not like you but like one you know sometimes I think it can set you up for being mistreated and also ignoring uh things around you that are like legitimately bad um and also being set up for disappointment when bad things happen which they ultimately will right so like there's this one example of like an exercise that's supposed to help you with your 40 percent of your happiness you can control and it's this exercise that has you imagining that your boss is yelling at you in the workplace and to me obviously i'm like that's not something that should happen in the workplace you should not be screamed at you should not be verbally abused in your workplace that is an objectively bad thing that is happening to you in the workplace it's inappropriate However, the exercise instead asks you to reframe the experience for your own happiness by instead responding to your boss yelling at you by thinking, now I know what I need to do differently in the future. 
My boss had the chance to blow off steam and will be less stressed now. I might be able to learn something new from what my boss said. I have the opportunity to self-reflect. Now I know what my boss is thinking. My boss is invested in my success and wants me to succeed. This is a good time to practice patience, love, and wisdom. My boss must be going through a real challenging time. At least I have a job. My boss must be having a bad day. At least my boss noticed me. You know what's funny? That's all things that I would think of. <laughs> That's literally... Like, literally, you, whenever someone has yelled at me, like, I think maybe at work only once. Yeah. I was like, I had kind of the same thought. Ugh. But also, like, the thing is, it's like, you can have, but I still felt really, really shitty. Like, I felt incredibly shitty. I was not happy, even though I was like, I understand why people yell, and I understand why people are having a bad day, and I understand intellectually that this is an experience I can learn from and like maybe later I'll be grateful for this experience that was not fun however it doesn't take away from in the moment that like one I feel shitty two like I think it was inappropriate (laughs) yeah to me I feel like this whole thing is so fucked up because it does not really allow you the space to acknowledge an injustice has occurred it basically just says like If you feel wronged, that's not valid. Uh, You need to change your mindset to stop feeling wronged. And, like, it might be true that choosing to view the situation in, like, a sympathetic or compassionate way ultimately makes you less resentful of the other person and, like, you end up feeling happier after the experience than if you, like, really honed in on, like, just being like, damn, that was not appropriate. I'm really mad that person did that to me. However, it might also be true that being mad about the experience and reporting your boss's behavior would lead to your boss getting fired and nobody else having to experience verbal abuse in the workplace again, which might create more long-term happiness that affects you, yes, and also a lot of people around you more positively. Yeah. So there's this, like, one professor of psychology named Daniel Gilbert who says, is happiness elusive? Well, of course we don't get as much of it as we want, but we're not supposed to be happy all the time. We want that. But nature designed us to have emotions for a reason. Emotions are a primitive signaling system. They're how your brain tells you if you're doing things that enhance or diminish your survival chances. What good is a compass if it's always stuck on north? It must be able to fluctuate. You're supposed to be moving through these emotional states. So like putting all the onus on people to just change their mindset denies the very real situations occurring that are bad around them that should be corrected. And one of the alternative approaches to this like 40% of happiness you could control thing. It focuses less on toxic positivity and instead it would offer like a more long-term fulfilling approach. So instead this approach, it says that to get back to your happiness set point when things go askew, you should engage in eudaimonic activities, things that are meaningful to you and take more thought and effort than the hedonic ones. So while hedonic activities become less effective at evoking happiness over time, because that whole novelty principle, like, oh my God, the party is awesome, the food is good, but the more you do it, the less special it is, eudaimonic activities actually become more effective over time. So instead of just trying to ignore or reframe all of your bad experiences, this other approach is like, look, you're going to have bad experiences. That's a part of human life. What if instead of trying to ignore them or pretend they didn't exist, you offset them in your life by adding in experiences that create more long-term fulfillment for you based on your values? And I liked that. I thought that that was like probably a more effective way to be like, okay, I got the 40% I can control. What can I do? I can't, I can't just like nice talk my way out of being annoyed that this person was shitty to me. But instead, I can offset it by going and doing something now with my time after work that brings me joy, reminds me there's more to life than this, and I have a a sense of purpose outside of my shitty nine-to-five job or whatever, you know? 
So there's this like other interesting component of this, which is, you know, the idea of how much control we have over our circumstances. And Daniel Gilbert, same guy, right? He wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness that says prospection, which is like your ability to look into the future and discover what will make you happy then is actually a really important part of trying to achieve happiness on the whole. So this is like kind of something you can control, but it does inter- interact with, you know, your circumstances, right? That 10% of thing that affects how happy you are, according to the woman we talked about earlier. The only problem is that humans as a species are actually really bad at guessing what will bring us joy in the future. Humans are just really bad at prediction in general. Yeah, we're bad guessers. We're horrible at it. So there's this excerpt from a Harvard Magazine interview with Gilbert, and it says, Gilbert reconsiders his grandmother's advice on how to live happily ever after. Find a nice girl, have children, settle down. Research shows, he says, that the first idea works. Married people are happier, healthier, live longer, are richer per capita, and have more sex than single people. But having children has only a small effect on happiness, and it is a negative one, he explains. I will also add, uh, for for married men, it is better. Oh, okay, really? I saw this... There's this whole like study where it's like basically married men and single women are the happiest. Oh my God. Amazing. Um, Okay. So he goes on and he says, people report being least happy when their children are toddlers and adolescents, the ages when kids require the most from their parents. As far as settling down to make a living, well, if money moves you into the middle class, buying food, warmth, and dental treatment, yes, it makes you happier. The difference between an annual income of $5,000 and one of $50,000 is dramatic, Gilbert says. But going from $50,000 to $50 million will not dramatically affect your happiness. It's like eating pancakes. The first one is delicious. The second one is good. The third, okay. By the fifth pancake, you're at a point where an infinite number more pancakes will not satisfy you to any greater degree. But no one stops earning money or striving for more money after they reach $50,000. So the reason is that humans hold fast to a number of wrong ideas about what will make them happy. Ironically, these misconceptions may be evolutionary necessities. Imagine a species that figured out that children don't make you happy, says Gilbert. We have a word for that species, extinct. There is a conspiracy between genes and culture to keep us in the dark about the real source of happiness. If a society realized that money would not make people happy, its economy would grind to a halt. So I really liked that. Um, but I think this is like interesting because it touches on the capitalism stuff we were talking about earlier. Like we're held hostage, right? By like the conditions of capitalism and that so dramatically affects like how we can relate to happiness in our own life. So there's all this stuff, you know, that we cannot control. There's the 40% of stuff we can control, but there's the 50% of it that, you know, people say is genetic and the 10% of it that's circumstantial, um, that I, I don't want to believe is real because I feel like it should be flipped, but whatever. <laughs> She's the scientist. And what does that mean for our lives then, whatever it is? So the first thing that I always think about is like location. Like where are you on the planet? Like what are you experiencing? Like we all know that circumstances do have a big impact on how happy we are. Even if it is only 10%, that's huge. And there are things that all of the positive thinking and reframing in the world cannot change. And that's why certain countries consistently rank happier than others on the World Happiness Report, which is a publication of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network that draws on global survey data from people in 146 countries. So, Kenna, do you remember what the happiest country in the world is? I think we mentioned it on our Utopia episode. Oh, my gosh. I forgot. It's Finland. Oh. Five years in a row. Wow. Yeah, they're always the happiest. And the top 10 happiest countries, you know, it's Finland, but then it's Denmark, Iceland, 
Switzerland, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Sweden, Norway, Israel, which surprised me because you know settler colonial state interesting very interesting and then the 10th one is new zealand um and the united states where we live comes in 15th and last is afghanistan Uh, and the editor of the report jan emmanuel del neve i believe says this is a or it's jan emmanuel um whoever it is says this is a stark reminder of the material and immaterial damage that war does to its very many victims And if you need a refresher, the war in Afghanistan would include the U.S. war, right? The U.S.-Afghanistan war that lasted from 1999 to 2021, a very long time, which killed 176,000 people, including over 46,000 civilians, and also contributed to a mass displacement event. Like, as of 2020, nearly 3 million Afghan people had been displaced. So, you know, if you could just really think yourself into happiness... All of the circumstances around you, like where you're born, what country you're in, if you're in the middle of a war zone, none of that would matter, right? We'd all be equally as happy based on our ability to just like think ourselves there. But clearly, you know, these circumstances do greatly affect what what we end up thinking about in our lives, like how happy we end up being. Otherwise, there wouldn't be these countries that are consistently ranking so much happier than everybody else on the scale. And here in the United States, in 2017, A Harris Poll survey of American happiness found that only 33% of respondents answered that yes, they were happy on a questionnaire, which is pretty low. Then in 2021, something monumental started happening. For the first time since this formal happiness survey started in 1972, more respondents ranked being not too happy over being very happy on the graph. So in fact, just 19% of the population as of 2021 reports being very happy. That's really, really low here in the U.S. As one former Pew researcher says, for the first time in polling history, in other words, Americans are more likely to say they're not happy than that they are. So from just 2020 to 2022, one poll found that Americans were more dissatisfied in almost every single category in 2022 presented on a survey than they had been in 2020. Key findings show that in 2020, 72% of Americans were happy with opportunities for a person to get ahead by working hard. And just two years later, not even that long, that number dropped 12 full percentage points down to 60, which is still a lot, um, a lot more than I would have guessed. But, you know, that's a rapid deceleration in confidence in the system. In 2020, 43% of Americans were happy with how income and wealth were distributed in the U.S., and two years later, that figure dropped down 13 full percentage points, down to just 30%. Wow. Yeah, and the results for the poll section labeled our system of government and how well it works were identical. It started at 43% in 2020, went down to just 30%. So from 2020 to 2022, the number of people happy with the size and influence of major corporations, that also dropped from 41% down to just 26%. And by 2022, most Americans were unhappy with the quality of their medical care, the quality of public education, and the quality of the economy. And of course, the pandemic has something to do with this, right? But it's also worth noting that the USA has been on a downward trend in happiness since before the pandemic even started. In 2012, the United States ranked 11th on the World Happiness Report, and now we're 15th. As Carol Graham, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, explains, we're always convinced we're exceptional, meaning people here in the United States. And now it seems to me we're exceptional only in our own stupidity more than anything else. We were the only rich country in the world prior to COVID where mortality rates were going up rather than down. So Graham's research shows that white men in America have been hit especially hard by this idea of a crumbling American dream. 
like well-paying blue collar jobs in the US have disappeared. And as Discover Magazine explains, Walmart's moved in, notorious for paying low, unlivable wages. And with that came joblessness, low education, addiction, and despair, which increased um, the the rate of these things that the studies called deaths of despair, which like trigger wording, it's like self-harm and yucky stuff. But these deaths of despair occur now more than ever in middle-aged white men and their suicide, drug overdoses, and liver disease due to drinking. So Graham explains the group that most believe hook, line, and sinker, you work hard to get ahead, you don't want government support, government support for losers, all of a sudden they need collective support. They need all sorts of things. And they don't have these natural informal social linkages. So where white men encountered shifting socioeconomic changes in the vacuum of individual exceptionalism and bootstrap America's like the best ideology or whatever the fuck, Discover Magazine explains that non-white Americans who spent centuries battling discrimination in American workplaces, economies, and society built informal networks of support in extended family or religious institutions. Discover Magazine also says that in one study on the US, Russia, Germany, and East Asia, researchers found that those in cultures that value collectivism versus individualism tend to be more successful in pursuing happiness because of an emphasis on social engagement. John Helliwell, an editor of the World Happiness Report and professor at the Vancouver School of Economics, says the richest countries are not the happiest. The healthiest countries are not always the happiest. The happiest countries are the ones who do have the highest level of a whole range of things. They include especially a willingness to trust each other, to work with each other, and to come together in times of difficulty. So in Denmark, Helliwell explains, um, you know, that's like a place where they consistently rank in the top five for like happiest places on earth. They've been number one, they were number two this year. He says they rank high in happiness and a lot of the reason why correlates directly to their workplaces, which are more collaborative and communal and where pay is more equal. Helliwell says these flat structures are happier places to work and they're often more effective. So Helliwell pointed out that the US, uh, which is one of the most unequal wealthy nations in the world and the most unequal country out of all the G7 nations is less economically equal than it was 50 years ago, which has consequences. The ties between American exceptionalism, hyper-individualism, capitalism, and happiness are like pretty on display for everybody to see. So there's Mihaly Mihali, who was a psychologist at Claremont Graduate University, who's where our friend David went, that's where he went, um, back way in 1999, started writing about this and said, because our sense of self in America hinges on how much we're worth in a market, we expect and de- depend on material rewards to make us happy, and they don't. Studies show that monetary gain doesn't bring emotional well-being beyond being able to tend to your basic needs. And the most famous study on the relationship between money and happiness came from two Nobel laureates, Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, who in 2010 found that the emotional well-being like you experience with income, it rises, but only up to amount of roughly $75,000, at which point it stops rising altogether as your income goes up. And there was an update done to the study in 2021, which did show that mean happiness can increase with incomes beyond $75,000, but not that much. So making around $10,000 per year, for example, in a study earned people a happiness score of 61%, 61 out of 100. Earning $75,000 though, uh, bumped you up to 64%, which is a jump of three percentage points. However, the difference between $75,000 a year and $400,000 a year, that only lifted your happiness less than two percentage points total. 
And when you compared earning $600,000 a year compared to $400,000, you actually decreased in happiness nearly one full percentage point as you got up past a half a million dollars. I wonder if that's because you changed tax brackets. <laughs> oh, I wonder. As one analysis explains, while it is true this paper finds money is correlated with happiness for incomes past $75,000, which is important because it does negate the 2010 study, the association is quite small, perhaps underwhelmingly small. The paper goes on to explain that based on this new study, money can buy happiness, but you might be surprised at how little it buys. And the reason is obvious to anyone who has ever been broke, right? The difference between having enough money to pay your bills versus worrying your account is going to overdraft and you can't buy groceries and pay rent is a huge quality of life difference. However, once your bills are getting paid, money isn't purchasing stress reduction anymore. It's not removing stressors from your life. And that's why the correlation with increased happiness starts to kind of sputter out. So this all made me think of that like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh yeah. Yeah, right? Like according to a Gallup World poll, the amount of money a person needs to be happy in North America today is currently $105,000. And for reference, that $75,000 that was found to be peak happiness income in the 2010 study, that would be around $102,000 in today's money adjusted for inflation. So that checks out. Like that's the same amount of money it was when that first study came out. It's just different now because you know, money, inflation things. But what happens to people who earn below that threshold of being able to comfortably pay their bills? The federal poverty level here in the US is currently $12,880 per year in income for a single person, which is so low. However, there are different and more specific guidelines for what it means to just be broke in different counties and states, which makes sense, right? Like what's considered a livable wage in the country's most expensive city, Manhattan, is gonna be different than what's a livable wage in the country's cheapest city, which currently I think is Kalamazoo, Michigan. So in Kalamazoo, the median house price is $168,000, and in Manhattan, it's more like $745,000, meaning you would have to earn 4.4 times as much there to get the same quality of life. And economists recommend that you only spend 30% of your monthly income on housing in order to be free from like financial stress and burden. Based on the country's median rent, which is currently $1,900 per month, that means that you would need to earn $68,400 per year just not to experience that acute financial strain that comes with being cost burdened. And that is a whole lot more, obviously, than the federal poverty level of $12,880. If you pay, though, more than 32% of your income to housing costs, your risk of becoming homeless goes up rapidly and dramatically, which is why it's important to pay more attention to that $68,000 number as a more accurate indication of financial struggle than the federal poverty line. In 2020, nearly half of all American renters spent over 30% of their income on housing. And that includes nearly a quarter of American renters who spent at least half of their monthly income on it. And these financial burdens mean that even if people aren't technically living under the federal poverty limit, they are definitely experiencing financial strain. For decades now, researchers and advocates have argued that the official number of people living in actual poverty by U.S. data is way too low, and the federal poverty threshold needs to be changed. According to AmericanProgress.org, the federal poverty line is remarkably outdated. So this is a quote from that. It says, to determine if someone is in poverty or not, the government uses a threshold developed in the 1960s. At that time, the government estimated that food was about one-third of the average family expenses. To be considered in poverty then meant having a pre-tax income less than three times the U.S. Department of Agriculture's estimate of a bare minimum food plan. This calculation has remained unchanged over the decades, save for adjustments for inflation. That threshold and other government poverty statistics does not reflect the economic reality of America today. 
The calculation doesn't take into account housing, transportation, child care, or medical costs. It doesn't consider geographical differences, even though costs of living vary significantly across the country. And it doesn't align with the lived experience of millions of U.S. residents, especially given that 43% of people can't afford to pay for basic necessities, 40% would struggle to find $400 in an emergency, and almost one-third of respondents to a recent Center for American Progress poll said that they or a family member did not have enough money to buy food at some point in the past year. So in reality, one analysis showed that almost 51 million households or 41% of all American households in total struggle to pay for basic necessities like food, housing, and healthcare, which matches up with their statistic they gave of 43%. And based on this data, it seems like the amount of money we need to be happy is actually just the amount of money we need to comfortably pay our bills and live. And there's that thing, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is where it comes in, right? It's the pyramid of human needs and it's got the five tiers and it says the needs lower down in the hierarchy have to be satisfied before individuals can attend to the needs higher up. So starting at the bottom level one is your physiological needs. That's like air, water, food, shelter, sleep, and clothing. And what data shows us is that 41% of American people are not even able to fulfill their first level needs, which means the opportunity for true happiness beyond that is basically non-existent. Which isn't to say poor people don't know how to be happy or carve out joy for themselves where they can. Like I grew up poor, my dad always found ways to have fun and have an exciting life for both of us. But it does show that what many psychologists have painted as true happiness, which we talked about at the beginning of the episode, that stuff doesn't even actually begin to kick in until level three of the hierarchy of needs. And then on level two after that is just like your safety needs, which includes things like personal security and health, but it also includes things like employment, resources, and property. And I feel like that's the level I'm on personally. Like I constantly worry that my employment is unstable and that I don't have enough resources to sustain myself beyond the immediate future. Like the immediate future as in like this week. And it's the stress I carry with me daily that makes every single misstep at work carry so much more weight, rendering me overcome with fear and panic. Looking at the hierarchy of needs and realizing I'm doing my best financially that I've ever done in my life, like I am now officially lower middle class and that feels so amazing, that only puts me on step two. And seeing that is so jarring because I just think like what hope do I have of achieving true happiness when this is the state I'm currently in and I had to work so hard just to get here. Then at level three, that's where we start to see a lot of the stuff that psychologists have been telling us we need if we want to be happy. That's where this really starts to kick in. And here, this level is love and belonging. And this is what includes friendship, intimacy, family, and a sense of connection. That's so interesting that you think that you need that before level three. You know, it's like level three because I'm like, I've had that even when I was really fucking broke. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, what I get out of it is that it's hard to maintain positive relationships with people around you when you're still in stress and survival mode. Yeah, when I was in survival mode, I feel like a lot of people were like, whoa, dude. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I experienced, too. People were like, do you want to do this thing? I haven't seen you in a while. Can you reach out to me more? And I'm like, I am barely surviving. I cannot do anything. I am so sorry. And they're like, oh, shit. Okay, don't worry about it. I get it. You know, they're, like, sympathetic, but... I definitely see how you're not able to really have the sense of love and belonging with other people around you if you're freaked out all the time and and scared. Or like you're working so much that you literally have no time. Exactly. 
So then the fourth level is where we really start to see all that stuff that psychologists were like, this is what you need to be happy. This is how happy works. This like really starts to take off on level four because level four is called esteem. And that includes respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, and freedom. And a lot of that should sound familiar to the psychological requirements for happiness that were like autonomy and self-respect, you know? And then level five on the original, uh, scale there's like a different scale that came out a little later but on the original scale level five is self-actualization which is the desire to become the most that one can be and this really seems to reflect the ideas of uh, eudaimonic happiness that psychologists were touching on maslow explains that it refers to the person's desire for self-fulfillment namely to the tendency for him to become actualized in what he is potentially the specific form that these needs will take will of course vary greatly from person to person in one individual it may take the form of the desire to be an ideal mother In another, it may be expressed athletically, and still in another, it might be expressed in painting pictures or inventions. And that to me reminded me of like the psychologist who was like, oh, well, there's like three different types of seekers and the different paths you'll be on for your own personal fulfillment. But, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that doesn't kick in until the top level. That is the top level. And Maslow says that the characteristics of self-actualized people include, uh, number one, that they perceive reality efficiently and can tolerate uncertainty. Number two, that they accept themselves and others for what they are. Number three, that they are spontaneous in thought and action. Number four is that they are problem-centered, not self-centered. Number five is that they have an unusual sense of humor. I actually appreciated that one. That one threw me for a loop. I was like, oh. Number six is that they can look at life objectively. Number seven is that they're highly creative. Number eight is that they're resistant to enculturation, but not purposefully unconventional. Number nine is that they're concerned for the welfare of humanity. Number 10 is that they are capable of deep appreciation of basic life experience. Number 11 is that they establish deep, satisfying interpersonal relationships with a few people. Number 12 is that they peak experiences. Number 13 is that they have a need for privacy. Number 14 is democratic attitudes. And number 15 is a strong moral or ethical sense of standard. And a lot of these things, yeah, to me, just sound like the characteristics that we were told happy people have. And the question then becomes, how do we achieve happiness when so much of our happiness is contingent upon having our needs met and so many people struggle to even have those basic needs met? So for people who aren't able to meet their needs, people who grew up poor, for example, happiness is a harder battle. In one study, researchers explain poverty is both a cause of mental health problems and a consequence. Poverty in childhood and among adults can cause poor mental health through social stresses, stigma, and trauma. Equally, mental health problems can lead to impoverishment through loss of employment or underemployment or fragmentation of social relationships. This vicious cycle is in reality even more complex as many people with mental health problems move in and out of poverty living precarious lives. The mental health of individuals is shaped by the social, environmental, and economic conditions in which they are born, grow, work, and age. Research shows that poverty imposes a psychological burden so great that the poor are left with little mental bandwidth with which to perform everyday tasks. People who live in poverty are also twice as likely to be diagnosed with depression than people who don't. So poverty creates chronic stress, which feels harder to escape and lasts a lifetime. Even now as an adult, I've been diagnosed with CPTSD, which is an ongoing form of post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of lots of things that have happened in my life, but one of them being an instability in my upbringing, a lot of which is linked, yeah, to growing up poor. It contributes to why I feel stuck on Maslow's second level of the hierarchy needs, right? I can't trust that any stability I have is long-term, even now that my income does fall into this like lower middle class range that I've officially managed to transcend being being broke, capital B, right? But I will still always live in fear that one wrong move will take that financial stability away from me in a second. 
So this other resource, urban.org, says, for children, the long-term mental health effects of poverty are even more alarming. In addition to occupying cognitive resources needed for education, arguably the clearest path out of poverty, poverty is toxic to children. Persistent stress and exposure to trauma trigger harmful stress hormones that permanently affect children's brain development and even their genes. The damage to childhood development is so severe that medical professionals now describe the early effects of poverty as childhood disease. So this was really interesting to me because it kind of shows the overlap between like the things you can't control, like your circumstances, like being born into poverty and the other thing you can't control with it, which is your genes, right? Like how the one psychologist was like, oh, well, like 10% is your circumstance, 40% is your genes. But what you start to see is that like if things like poverty, which is a circumstance can alter your genes, like the two do overlap more than you would like to think. Like they're not so clear cut. Because, like, remember, there's the genetic component to happiness, and research has found that certain personality traits heavily influenced by genetics also contribute directly to happiness. So there's this whole element, too. So there are these, like, five main personality traits that are actually found more often in happy people. People who, like, rate themselves or their lives as being happier than the average person. Like, if you look at them, there are these personality traits they all kind of have in common. So... The first one of them is enthusiasm. So basically this just means that people who are sociable and expressive tend to have more fun and higher life satisfaction and stronger relationships. And according to Science Daily, sensation seeking, which is the urge to do exciting things, which is linked to enthusiasm, that's linked to dopamine, which is a chemical that carries messages in your brain. Scientists analyzed genes in the dopamine system and found a group of mutations that help predict whether someone is inclined toward that kind of enthusiasm of sensation seeking or not. So right away you see that this like personality trait that's just more common in people who are happy does have a direct genetic correlation. The second personality trait that is more common in people that's happy is this thing called low withdrawal. Have you heard of this? Mm -mm. Okay, this one I felt insulted by, but (laughs) this basically means you're less likely to get overwhelmed and turn inwards and you're less likely to be neurotic or experience anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, so this is just, you know, more spelling bad news for neurodivergent people and our path to happiness, I guess. Um, like I'm a high neuroses, high anxiety person for sure, ADHD and OCD. And obviously genetics too, yes, play a significant role in the development of anxiety. Particularly researchers have found that genes on chromosome nine are associated with anxiety. So yes, these personality traits of super happy people, again, directly correlated to your genetic predisposition. I feel like it's like they just want all golden retrievers instead of us chihuahuas. Yes, we are angry small chihuahuas who are not sure what is happening and we are on high alert. And they're like, why are you not a golden retriever? And I'm like, I would long to be a golden retriever that I am small and angry and frightened. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes I'm like, you know, like, I feel like it's like a little bit too, like if you reframe it, it's not like, like people who have high anxiety or who aren't like you know like I think of it as like the popular people or like the golden retrievers which is like it's totally fine if you are that person but I feel like people frame happiness too in this one way or like it's there's like when there's like a bunch of different experiences that you can have that can be if like reframed in a different way that our society isn't used to like I was like listening to some podcast or something where they were talking about being like a joyful person I think it was Pema Chodra you know like where it's just like like a like a Buddhist nun and they were like oh well I'm not happy all the time but I live my life pretty joyful because things aren't good all the time and sometimes it's just fine when it's shitty right that kind of ties in with what the one um person was saying where he was like 
yeah, like you're not supposed to be happy 100% of the time. Like it's okay that you're not happy 100% of the time. Like that's actually an evolutionary thing that helps you get out of dangerous and bad situations. Yeah. And it's just like, I think it's interesting to see like in the future, once we start talking about stuff like this more, like in a more like nuanced way, like how that will change, you know, like things that we like don't even think about right now as being like, happy or meaningful or like I don't know like maybe maybe chihuahuas will become the it dog next season maybe they will so then there's this other thing called industriousness industriousness yes which is just like thinking ahead planning working hard and following through on things like if you have these traits you're more likely to be a happy person um and this is also you may have noticed Kenna it's not very ADHD friendly at all either uh industry uh, you mean my just uh compulsion to do shit no <laughs> well adhd symptoms obviously include impulsivity disorganization problems prioritizing problems focusing on a task and poor planning amongst other things um which yeah kind of contradicts with this thing about industriousness but the thing is i think you and i are industrious like you're definitely more like we're both really hard workers yes you are more successful than me at working hard but I think that like we both are hard workers but our hard work sometimes makes us happy and sometimes makes us uh, yeah it's like a curse sometimes I mean I feel like the follow-through on things is like one of the main issues like I start a lot of projects but I only finish a few same yeah and like you know that's like ADHD is also heavily influenced by genetics, right? There's a 74% heritability rate for ADHD. Like, my dad has it. I have it. I'm like, which one of them has it? <laughs> Who I think did I, this to me? <laughs> I think I know. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> so the fourth one of these five personality traits that's common in people who are happier than the general public would be compassion or empathy. Um, yeah, studies have also shown, though, that genes play a role in your empathy. Up to 10% of our ability to empathize with other people comes from genetic factors. Interesting. Yeah, that's like the study where it's like um, liberal brains are more empathetic and conservative brains are more scared. Yes, I remember that. The fear. Yeah, yeah. The fifth thing, the last one, is this idea that there's intellectual curiosity, which just means like people who like to problem solve, they tend to be happier. And that too is also influenced by genetic factors, like your ability to problem solve. Yeah. So these are the top five traits associated with what researchers call well-being, aka happiness. And they are things that, yes, are all affected by our genetic predispositions, which varies how much control we have truly over, you know, our happiness in our lives. And the reality is that some of us will just, yeah, struggle more to be happy. And I say this as a highly neurotic, anxious person for whom managing stress is harder than many of my peers. And according to this one review article called Happiness and Health, The Biological Factors, happiness underlying factors are considerable from two dimensions, endogenic factors, biological, uh, biological, cognitive, personality, and ethical subfactors, and exogenic factors, which are behavioral, sociocultural, economical, geographical, life events, and aesthetic subfactors. Among all endogenic factors, biological subfactors are the significant predictors of happiness. Existence of significant differences in temperament and happiness of infants is an indicator of biological influences. So according to this paper, genes affect between 35 to 50% of happiness alone. Wow. Yes, which actually tracks with what the first uh, woman who was a psychologist uh, that we talked about said, where she said, you know, 
40% is something you can control and then it's 10%, right, is like your circumstances and then 50% is your genetics. So at least more than half you cannot control consciously. Correct. So I actually also looked at the table for genes and how they relate to mood and emotional characteristics. Um, And I found a lot of my own traits listed. Really? Yeah. So there's like ADHD, obviously, but there's also things like um, a predisposition to enjoy video games, high-risk sexual activity, post-traumatic stress disorder, executive functioning issues, aggression, criminal activity, novelty-seeking, extroversion, and panic disorder, all of which I have. All of those things are associated with the DRD2 gene. Oh. Yeah. And it's hypothesized that the DRD2 gene is a reinforcement or reward gene. So that's interesting. I get the gene where me and my mom just like want to take a nap. Oh, I love We're that. We're tired people. <laughs> no, but I, I feel like I just miss out on so much stuff because I'm like, that sounds exhausting. Yeah. I mean, okay, so there's also this other gene, the 5-HT2A gene, and this sounded like factors that affect this gene. Uh, I related to two. This one involved like uh, things that would interact with ADHD again, panic disorders, impulsive aggression, cognitive impulsivity, anger, having a sweet tooth, and obsessive compulsive disorder. So this gene encodes one of the receptors for serotonin also, which is a natural mood stabilizer that does contribute to your happiness. So whatever was happening here, I read these and I was like, oh, this is me. I am not a creative or individual person whatsoever. <laughs> I am, it really messed with my nature versus nurture concept, like conceptualization of myself, right? I'm like, maybe I have no free will at all. Ah. It's like those TikTok videos where it's like, is, I, is it my personality or is it my ADHD? Exactly. Still, this paper clarifies some researchers believe that happiness is due to genetic and inherited factors. Others believe that happiness caused by environmental factors like high income, education, being active during life. But results of previous studies suggest that happiness is not caused by just one or two factors, but it is a result of integrated several factors. So it is all of it. We do have a little free will, but it does get a little depressing hearing all that to me. I'm like, oh, great. So how then do people strive to be happy in a world that's set up to keep them struggling at every turn? Is happiness even a goal to strive towards or is the power of positive thinking being weaponized as a tool to keep people content in their own exploitation while shifting the blame for not achieving a good life onto individuals rather than the system? For a systemic approach, uh, I do feel like we could look at a place like Finland, right? Because that was the happiest country on earth. They still exist in a system of capitalism, which isn't ideal to me, but there are notable things that they are doing well that contribute to the general population's ability to be happy in the first place. So the first thing is money. Yeah, like I said, still neoliberal capitalism, but the Gini coefficient in Finland, which is the measure of economic inequality uh, that ranks from zero to one, zero being perfectly equal and one being perfectly unequal, Theirs is 0.27, which is below the global average of 0.35, which means that they have more income equality than most places on the planet. The U.S., for the record, ranks uh, worse off than the global average, coming in at 0.4. So moving to Finland would mean that you would instantly experience 40% less of a class divide, even in a system of neoliberal capitalism. That's less than ideal, just by virtue of the protections put in place and social safety net that's present there. According to a study conducted by the Labor Institute for Economic Research, pay differences in Finland are smaller than in most other countries in Europe. The report stated that in Finland, the coverage of collective agreements is broad, the union density is high, and wage and salary formation is coordinated. 
They have high minimum wages, profound trade union density, and a lot of protection for collective bargaining. Food insecurity in Finland also affects just 2.5% of the population, compared to nearly 12% of the population in the U.S. And if you look at the more broad interpretation of people struggling to pay for the basic needs, that was between 41 to 43%, depending on the source. Wages in Finland are higher compared to the U.S., and Finnish people actually pay 15% less in taxes and experience five times less poverty than people in the U.S. do. Wow. Yeah. Then there's the thing about health care. So, like, Finland has universal health care, and it's the fifth top-ranked health care system in the world. Uh, the U.S. came in at 18th in the same analysis. So their health care system is better than ours, and it's also cheaper. In 2015, U.S. health care cost was $9,451 per capita per year, which was 2.4 times higher than Finland, which came in a little under four grand. In Finland, you would spend 52% less money on health care overall, including in your taxes. Healthcare in Finland isn't entirely free, but it's pretty close to it. 88% of people there are happy with the system, and no Finnish person has ever gone into debt because of medical costs. You're also 45% less likely to die during infancy there, and 55% less likely to be murdered compared to the U.S. Life expectancy in Finland is also 10% higher than it is here. Wow. So then the next thing is education, which I think we also talked about in our uh revisiting utopia episode but finland is ranked as having the best education system in the world by some metrics uh usually though it's in the top ranked systems finnish students have virtually no stress compared to american school children whose stress levels actually compare closely with adults and finland has virtually no standardized tests there's one standardized test which is voluntary you can take it as a teenager if you'd like and they'll use it to help place you in, in like post the equivalent of what would be like post high school basically The school system also focuses on cooperative learning rather than competition amongst uh, students. And since the 1980s, the Finnish school system has been guided by these kind of like core values, which is education should be an instrument to balance out social inequality. All students should receive free school meals. There should be an ease of access to healthcare in the education system. There should be psychological counseling available and there should be individualized guidance available. So also in Finland, they only require nine years of compulsory schooling, which means you can opt to complete school at the age of 16 if you want. And their high school graduation rate is 93% compared to the U.S.'s, which is just 85%, and two-thirds of students there attend further education, uh, which, by the way, is also free. Finland treats trade school and traditional college as being on equal footing, and vocational training is typically three years, and it trains students for various careers. And on the opposite end, the college end, Finland has the most effective universities in the world. And you know those early school start times that we have in the U.S.? You know how we'd have to be at class, like, so early? You know, in my, guess what time I had to be in school in my high school? What? 7.15. Yeah, I feel like it's it's always so early. And as a teenager, that killed me, right? Because when you're a teenager, your biological clock is, like, naturally set different. So you instinctively want to wake up later in the day. I was not that teenager. Oh, I woke really? up okay. at, like, 5.30 every oh morning. Oh, my God. No. When I was a kid, I was, like, up at the crack of dawn. It's really wild. Only as an, the older I get, the more I sleep in. That's really interesting. I remember doing research on this when I was in high school because I was like, this is so fucked up that they make us go so early and learning that like most teenagers, you're going to wake up later in the day just because like that's what happens when your body's in a period of rapid growth or something. But basically research has shown that early start times are detrimental to students' well-being, health, and like their maturity, their ability to mature. And schools in Finland took this into note, and instead, they start class anywhere between 9 a.m. to 9.45 a.m. 
Yeah, that seems better. There are so many kids in my classes that were just asleep first period. Right. And then they're done with school still by 2 or 2.45 p.m. They have longer class periods and much longer breaks in between classes. And there's like a lot of these 15 to 20 minute intervals where students can stretch their legs or eat a snack or relax. And students in Finland also have the least amount of outside work, like homework, than any other student in the world coming in at just 30 minutes per night. Yeah, I firmly believe that like homework is not helpful no also in finland you're 92 percent less likely to go to prison than in the u.s yeah that makes sense that makes sense and they have some of the most progressive prisons in the world you know i don't think prisons should exist at all kind of you obviously think bad guy island that's not australia <laughs> and in finland they kind of combine both of our thoughts because they have uh, open prisons there Oh. Not all of them are open prisons, but they do have a lot of open prisons, which just means, and some of them are on islands, uh, and this just means there's no bars, there's no chains, there's no locks. Inmates can leave the facility for work or school. They can use their own cars. And instead of prison cells, they just have like little dormitories or like apartments with internet access and like places for recreation. And if you're wondering if it works, uh, it does work better than the U.S. prison system. One in three released Finnish inmates will return to prison compared to 43% of released former prisoners in the United States. Wow. Yes. And Pia Puolaka, the project manager for Finland's Smart Prison Project, says, we have this kind of normality principle that prisoners should be treated equally even though they are prisoners, but they should have access to the same services and rights as other citizens. Revolutionary, right? They're just like, oh my god, just because you commit a crime doesn't mean you're not human, you're still a person, and we're going to acknowledge that. There's also housing there. Finland in 2020 also came became the first country to formally adopt a national housing first policy, which provided unhoused people with free, stable, permanent housing with no strings attached, which is revolutionary because in a lot of like systems that are designed to help unhoused people, they first require them to get sober or get a job and all these things. It's called the staircase model. And it's actually been proven that the staircase model is not effective. And on the flip side, people actually do end up getting sober more often or getting a job with more frequency if they first have a stable permanent house. And a lot of times people will say, well, they're doing house, we're doing housing first like systems. Like we say that in Los Angeles, apparently they're like, yeah, we're doing housing first, but they're not giving people permanent stable housing. They're putting them in like temporary transitional housing, which is not a housing first model at all, actually. As of 2021, just 0.08% of Finland's population is homeless, and that number has been consistently going down more and more each year. So by 2027, Finland is slated to have absolutely zero homeless people, no homelessness whatsoever. Wow. And by contrast, uh, the U.S. has over twice that number. We come in at 0.2%, a figure that is on the rise. Our rate of homelessness here increased 20% between 2020 and 2021, and experts fear that it's going to be even worse this year. Yeah, especially with, like, I think this year, like, I mean, with inflation, it's, yeah, it's absurd. Like, it's like, uh, when you are saying that the average, the median rent is $1,900. Wild, right? That shocked me. Yeah. Like I have paid the most rent I've ever paid right now and I have a good deal. Yeah. And I am like, I know people who pay as much as I'm paying right now for a one bedroom for a room in a house. Yeah, that's true. And your one bedroom is in a really good location. Yeah, uh, we could. Oh, I love the location. Okay, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. But I think, you it's know, loud. you're centrally it's located. Loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I think your apartment's cute. You know, it's a good place. But you got into it with rent control years ago. And just, like, how many years ago was that? 
five five years ago so in just five years it's like that which was like an, an expensive apartments moving to five years ago yeah like you said now that's what people pay to rent a room in a house yeah like so it, fast yeah it's just like it's 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 absurd to me the rate where like people are like saying like one bedrooms for three thousand dollars yes yes okay so my house I bought it in 2019, three bedrooms, two baths. It's a back house. We split the property with my friend. We bought it all together, right? So my house, three bedroom, two bath, back house. And my boyfriend and I split the back house and we together pay 2,500, right? So I pay 1250 for my half or whatever. And I remember when we bought the house at the end of 2019, I was like, oh, it's a little expensive, but it'll be fine. And now just a few years later, there are 600 square foot, one bedroom apartments, literally across the street on my same street running for $2,100. And that was actually probably six to eight months ago. It's probably worse now. Yeah. Like I think in my building, no, nothing has been redone. Like the inside of the building is like, one of my old uh, neighbors used to let her dog just pee inside and they never replaced the carpet. Landlord special. Landlord special. And I think they were renting out a studio for 1800 Wow. Yeah, that sounds about like the prices. Absurd. Absurd. Okay, so I think we also actually talked about this other thing in our building utopia episode or revisiting utopia episode which is episode 46 if anybody wants to find it but it's about um finland's national quality framework for healthcare for the elderly did we talk about this yeah they offer like in-home care and beyond so if you're elderly finland will assign somebody to just check in on you help you with things you need make sure you're safe come to your house because of covid they'll like zoom with you and like video chat just to check in and then if you're at a point where you need more than that they'll like you know be able to put you in a facility that will help you or they'll assign like medical professionals to come to your house they just have this like comprehensive elderly care program basically which is so cool and on top of this Finland has all sorts of other stuff right they have family allowance and student financial aid and maternity allowance and sickness allowance and cash benefits for parents and reimbursement of medical expenses unemployment benefits that aren't related to your earnings they have labor market subsidies they have child care subsidies they have old age retirement pensions And all of this, what it makes me think, like, okay, everybody in Finland's so happy. And everybody's like, why are the Finnish so happy? And it's like, well, Finland is meeting the first two levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for its citizens, which gives them a leg up on their journey towards happiness and fulfillment. While Americans, by contrast, we struggle stuck in the bottom rungs of survival trying to fend for ourselves. And I think the reason why toxic positivity and conversations about like changing your frame of mind can come across so insulting is that many of us are not even in a place where happiness feels like an option. Like we're just busy trying to make it through the day. And the road to happiness can only come after safety and stability have been achieved. And that means that happiness is a luxury not many of us can afford, quite literally. Yeah. So Kenna, what do you think about happiness? Um, wow. Complicated. Not easy. Yeah, like... Which is funny because, like, you're like, yeah, happiness. Like, yeah, I'm happy or I'm sad. But it's, like, the the function of happiness in our society, which is funny because it's built into our constitution, the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. It is. That's really interesting. That's a pretty vague, ambiguous thing for them to build into the constitution. And pretty brazen of them to do so while also being, like, only white landowning men are people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's, like... I think it's tied into this weird American thing where happiness is only, you know, earned. You know, I'm using air quotes earned when, to me, it should be, like, a basic human right to feel actualized. Yes. Like, or being able to feel respect. I mean, I, I do think that with the Maslow's 
like hierarchical needs. I think that you can be, you don't necessarily, you can be poor and still have a lot of qualities. Like I feel like um, in touch with myself. Like I know what I want from my life. I help other people. Like I, I don't necessarily think that you have to have money, but it is very, very difficult. Yes. It is very difficult because like, you know, we were talking about in our last episode, like Elon Musk's mom not buying furniture, but buying a computer. Right. You know, and we were just like, why don't you just get furniture from the dump, you know, like yeah. from a Goodwill or like... The side of the road. Yeah. You like, can find furniture. You can get a chair from a dumpster. Right, like, right. But when I was like, when I have been really stressed out about my money and my health, like, you know, because I was like really sick and I couldn't afford everything. And like, I just made terrible decisions like terrible like you get like blinders on it was really really hard I mean I had moments of happiness when I was like probably at the lowest point in my life for sure but it was just like extremely difficult like really like I did need like I needed money I needed money and I needed a safety net and like the reason why Finland is happier than America is because they have a safety net and the reason we don't have a safety net here is by design Yeah, exactly. I think, like, also, like, because I think about this a lot, too, like, as somebody who grew up broke, and people are always like, oh, it's irresponsible to have kids if you can't afford it. And I'm like, you know, my dad couldn't afford it, and he was a great father. He was an amazing father. But I think, like, the moments of happiness that we found, it kind of, like, speaks to that short-term and long-term happiness thing we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Like, you can find moments of happiness, even if you're, like, broke and struggling. You can be like, I enjoy this. Like, I have a sense of humor. I'm creative. I feel fulfilled in these, like, individual pursuits and these flashing moments that are, like, pleasurable and nice, and I feel feel good in them but what you're going to miss out on is like the long-term opportunity that having financial stability affords you to like invest in your values and goals and dreams yeah especially if one of your you know values and goals is like to help other people right because it's kind of like that thing like you know in the airplane you put your mask on before helping somebody else right it's hard to help someone else when you can barely fucking help yourself Yeah, and that's, like, the thing I run into where I'm, like, oh, I really like, like, I like being able to help people more, like, I like having projects, I like fixing things, I feel like there's a better world that we can build, it's within our capacity and our grasp to do so, but building that better world costs money. It does, and, like... In the system we have, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, too, like, I don't, I don't think it's hope, I'm just gonna say, I don't think it's hopeless, and I think that, like, I think that everyone like tries to do that usually I feel like I'm just gonna say hot take I feel like most people are doing the best they can in the situation that they're in yeah most people are not actively being like I want to be a dick <laughs> like that is like a very it's a very small minority though they are very vocal I feel like too if you're a person who's like like fuck everybody my 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 main goal is chaos. I'm going to sow anger. Ah. I feel like lots of times that's a reaction to like feeling or being wronged by society. And feeling unhappy. Like, right. Like a fucking like falling down moment. You're fucking unhappy. You're not a ha- You're not being a dick. Most people are not being dicks to other people when they're happy or when they're fulfilled. Right. I, in my opinion, in my anecdotally, I am not a, uh, an emotions scientist well we did that episode about trolls yeah we talked about how trolls are like internet trolls are most likely to be like 
white men who are economically disadvantaged. Yeah. And they feel spurned and they feel like they should have power and they don't. And there is like a weird element probably of white supremacy and misogyny in there where they're like, the perfect white man world is supposed to work for me, a white man. Ah, it didn't. But like also there is that like if you apply the class kind of perspective of it, you're like, okay, well I can see here if I do like a class analysis that like you're spurned and jaded also as a member of the working class and you see you know, rich people getting to live these extravagant lives that they shouldn't be entitled to while everybody else suffers. And that actually is a main like function and feature of like that working class international rage. So, you know, and also sometimes it's coupled with misogyny if it's especially if it's a successful woman. But like, I think there is something to be said for that psychologically. Like if you, even the people who are like, I'm being a dick, fuck everybody. It's like, well, they're kind of being a dick, but they're also like having an emotional response to a situation that's probably wrong to them, which doesn't mean it's okay, but it does make them sympathetic characters and people are complex. And I think like, that's the thing where you can like look at people and understand them and be like, okay, like I get, I get it. I get it. Your right to be angry, your right to be hurt. This is a frustrating system that's not serving anybody. I just feel like that type of anger is best suited to be like, I want to do something so that even if maybe my situation in life socially does not improve that much, that it creates something to where down the line, it is possible for people to be happy the majority of the time. Right. And I think that's interesting too, because it like, it kind of like, circles back to that idea of like okay your boss is yelling at you you can reframe it you can learn from the experience and it's like yeah also though you could be like whoa this was super fucking inappropriate and I'm going to make it so that nobody in the future has to deal with this person because I'm going to do everything in my power to either correct their behavior or remove them from the situation yeah and sometimes I think that like you know not that (laughs) I'm almost almost like happiness is overrated but like sometimes (laughs) I think that people put so much of this value on this like idyllic happiness like over everything else and like first is like survival survival that is your main thing that that is number one oh i over happiness is survival (laughs) number one is like and second is like making sure the the people around you are okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your own survival and the survival and well-being of people around you. And then after that, happiness, you know? Right. We're all, I'm alive. Is everybody alive? Yes, we're all alive. Okay, now let's move on. But <laughs> it sucks because, like, the, the place we live, the country we live in, nobody's even fucking 874,000 people a year dying from poverty and inequality-related issues, and nobody and, seems to care about it or notice. And I think people care. I think, like, people care. It just seems like... Our system is so rigged uh, against anything meaningfully happening because of, first of all, the way that money operates in politics, you know, capitalism, like, didn't it just come out like some leaked Bank of America document saying like, we want people to be unhappy because then, you know, if people are happy, they won't work. Like, we want this to be, you know, our economy. like. It is in the interests of big corporations for people to struggle and not have a safety net because then they have to work for low wages. Because otherwise, I mean, you have to live. Yeah. Like, in America, not having a job can be a death sentence. No, it definitely is. Yeah. Like, that's the thing about poverty. Like, being poor increases your risk of losing your shelter and once you lose your shelter like your lifespan radically goes down and once you hit the streets and you're sleeping on the streets your lifespan gets even more dramatically shortened and it's like this domino effect like you can't fuck up even a little bit like you can't fuck up for a month like you can't fuck up for a week like some jobs you can't even fuck up for a day 
Yeah, and that's why it's just like with all the help that people were getting from the pandemic, like people realize like, oh shit, they could have been doing this the whole fucking time. Yeah, when everyone was getting the unemployment, the $4,000 a month unemployment. Yeah, and yeah. like even if you were like, I'm just saying, even if you are a capitalist, you know, you d- mm-hmm. you're not, like, the way that our taxes are spent, like, fucking third of your paycheck is going to, like, bullshit. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, like, it is. Like, it is. military fighter jets, we could, that's the thing that blows my mind, is, like, we could solve hunger, homelessness, we could solve all these things, but it's just, like, with just the taxes that we pay. You know Just what? the taxes we are, that's already, already taken there, out of yeah. our fucking paychecks. We could have free healthcare with, we could have cheaper healthcare with just the taxes that are taken out of our paycheck. But you know, like it's, it's like a weird, it's like a weird mind game. It's like a weird mind game. Yeah. They're doing psyops against us. Yeah. Well, it's like, <laughs> it's not even that, I don't think it's that far a stretch. If people are like, do you think everyone should like be able to go to the doctor if they're going to die? Most people be like, of course. Yeah. I think like, one of our one of our episodes that like actually doesn't get listened to as much as our as our other episodes but I think is one of our best episodes is the uh, big gun starring Nicolas Cage which is all about the military budget that's the stuff you listen to if you just want to lose your mind being infuriated and people don't listen to that one that much maybe I named it too dramatically but I'm like that does that speaks to what you're talking about it's like the money first of all money shouldn't even exist second of all if we want to use money like the money we already have can just be better redistributed to like actually help people and serve people in our community yeah that's like that would be like easy step number one right I actually wrote about that because I'm you know I'm working on a book right and it's all about my relationship with money and the second chapter is me in high school and of course what happened in high school it was uh the war on terror yep and that's one of the things I talk about a lot it's like the war on terror when I was a teenager was really the first time when you looked at the numbers and you saw like oh shit our government has the money to do anything it wants for us, and it chooses not to. It chooses to give the CEOs of these private corporations who sell them weapons parts at inflated prices for broken, bad equipment we don't need that's overpriced sometimes 600 oh, times. and a billion dollars, billion with a B, yeah. went missing right. in, in cash. In Iraq, right? Yes. Yes, yes. And you, could ju- you could have just given a bunch of people a ton of cash. Yeah, it's it's wild. And when you look at that, then you're like, it is it has to be just by design because they don't care about us. But meanwhile, the Raytheon CEO makes like twenty three million dollars a year. Yeah, well, it's just two like, million dollars a month. The, to me, like that is like like it's it's out there. See, you know, there mm-hmm. have been memos being like, we need basically we need people to be unhappy because like if people are happy, they won't fucking work. But I personally think with like talking about the hierarchy list of needs, people do want to work if it's meaningful. Yes. Like, and it's not like, I I was reading somewhere that the optimum hour, like, or like maybe it was on TikTok, is eight hours a week. Oh, we talked about that in our 16 or 20. It's uh, like eight hours a week. But like. You're happier working eight hours a week than you would be not working at all. Yeah. Like every if you distributed the job like you could figure out a system to where everyone could just like even two hours of a a shitty job that's meaningful like taking out the trash or like clean you know stuff four days a week two hours a day which i actually think is the most meaningful work but i personally am just bad at cleaning so it's (laughs) like (laughs) you know just like shit that's like even like unpleasant like but you know like i i do think that like you know, I two. I think it's like a two pronged thing, where it's like 
One, it's the political economic system itself, like mm-hmm. the capitalistic system that we're in just like right now. But it's also like what goes along with that too is like a, a mindset. Like it, like not quite like a spirituality, but like just like maybe like how people think. Like I think of like one thing that is really running very heavy through America is like some fucking Ayn Rand survival of the fittest like right right which it's like i feel like if what was mostly running through america was like we got each other's backs like we're in this together we're being chill like if you you could literally just have a platform that was like we just want to be chill yeah i mean that's the thing they were talking about like in denmark when the guy was like yeah people are like really happy in denmark because everybody works together they collaborate they're on equal footing there's minimal pay inequality like you know, people cooperate. And when you view people around you not as your competition, but as, like, your community, like, that changes a lot of how you interact in the world. Yeah, and, like, that would actually make people happy. And it is so funny. I feel like, you know, with, like, all the Supreme Court justice stuff, I was like, if I was on there, it'd be like, everything would be like, would be like, well, does this contribute to overall happiness of everyone? <laughs> that would be like the most important thing. Approach. And covers so many things. Yes, the pursuit <laughs> of happiness. Well, I don't know. I think my hot take about happiness is this. You, we should keep trying. We should never stop trying to carve out moments of joy for ourselves in the little ways that we can in our lives. But I think that uh, we should we should never be happy with the systems of power as long as they continue to exploit and oppress people. Yeah. And I think that's it. Stay angry at the people in charge. Stay angry at the political system that is screwing everybody over. That's, like, where you stay angry. And, like, everybody else, like, they're on your side and they're struggling with whatever in their own way, too. Even if they're being a fucking asshole, they're also a victim of the same system as the rest of us and... If you know that, you know, I think it makes it easier to carve out those moments of appreciation and joy in your life. Like, we are not each other's enemies. Like, the systems of power are the enemy of all of us. No war but class war, right? Yep. I think that's it. Anyway, happiness. It's a loaded term. Yeah. But, you know, do something nice for yourself. Yeah. Do something nice for yourself and do something nice for someone else. Yeah. That sounds good. I like it. We did it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. We will be on summer break for the month of August. We will be on hiatus because it is both of our birthdays. Yeah, we take birthday month very seriously as Leos. As Leos, yes. If you would like to support us on Patreon, though, it is only $2 a month. And you can get access to bonus content there, including two bonus episodes through month, through month, per month. And uh, if not, that's okay. We're just happy you're here and we'll see you in September. 